We're looking at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. And um, if you haven't been with us this semester, we've been looking at the opening chapters of Genesis. And just to let you know who the people are that these uh, words are written to, um, Genesis goes with the first five of the books of the Bible. They're called the Pentateuch. They're written by Moses. Moses was God's servant that God appointed to deliver Israel out of slavery in Egypt. If you're familiar with the movie, the Ten Commandments, which they show at Easter. I don't know why. That's the story of Moses and Israel's deliverance um, from, from slavery in Egypt. God is fulfilling His covenant promises to Israel that He actually will look at later in the semester in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 to Abraham. What He's doing with Israel is He starts with this guy Abram and says, starting with you, I'm going to begin my work of fixing the world. And slowly, Abram's family becomes a great nation, the nation of Israel. They fall into slavery in Egypt over a period of time. And then Moses, God's servant, comes and uh, delivers them out of slavery and is going to lead them into the promised land, which is actually one of God's initial promises to Abraham. Uh, These books are written to those people during that transition period from Egypt to the promised land because that transition period lasted 40 years. And uh, they were prone to faithlessness because if God said, I was making you my, uh, my uh, blessed people in order to bless the world and giving you the promised land, and then you ended up in the desert for 37 years, it's understandable that you'd be struggling. And so what Moses does, what God does through Moses, he starts at the very beginning, and he says, I want you to understand what it was supposed to be like, because you're going to be my mechanism for fixing it. And so that's what we've looked at the past couple of weeks, what creation was supposed to be like, how it was intended to be, that creation was supposed to be beautiful, handiwork of God's, to be delighted in, that we are to care and take care of it and nurture it and bring it to potential. And last week we looked at about how there's a rhythm to creation, a rhythm to our lives. We even looked at time as a created uh, thing. And this week we're doing the hard task of asking what went wrong. Um, and it is a, that's a heavy question to ask because what we see in Adam and Eve as our first parents is we see ourselves in a lot of ways. And... Um, we need to know what went wrong in order to understand how God's fixing it. So this is what's classically termed the fall in Genesis 3, when, men, uh, when Adam and Eve fell from God's favor, fell in sin. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was, des- was to be desired in order to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The grass withers, 
Flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, as we consider what went wrong with creation, uh, how we frustrated the beauty of it, dear God, I pray that you would convict our hearts and at the same time draw us toward you, that as we find that you are a God of law and a holy God, we'd also find you're a God of mercy. Uh, Speak to us now. Teach us now. In your name we pray. Amen. When I say the word sin, a lot of different things might come to mind. Um, When I say the word sin, maybe immediately some of y'all immediately think about yourself, and you can kind of catalog these vices that you have, right? Um, You know, ah, sin, yeah, I know. And you can catalog your struggles. And maybe when you hear the term sin, you actually think, you initially think, like, ah, gospel preachers, they're the worst, you know? The fire, hell, and brimstone sermon, the religious fanatics. Maybe you think of Brother Micah, uh, who's not a gospel preacher, in case you're wondering. Um, Maybe when you hear the term sin, you think about other people. You think about the ways that you've been uh, sinned against, you know, who you have a right to be angry with. Uh, What I want to do tonight is really this. Actually, what I want to do is I want to do a house episode. I'm not going to be that cheesy. Um... (laughs) It's fine that preachers do that kind of stuff, but uh, this is all good medical dramas are based on this. There's something wrong, and it's confusing, and in order to treat it, you have to understand the problem first. Tonight, we're looking at the problem first. Next week, we're looking at how it is treated, but tonight is looking at the problem. We're essentially doing exploratory surgery on what sin is. Um, And we have to develop an understanding of sin because, first of all, in a lot of ways, we don't really know what it is. Um, Usually what we think of it as is, again, kind of a catalog of our own vices that we struggle with. Some particular actions today, you might be able to list the three times you sinned today. Uh, It's not entirely inappropriate, but that's certainly incomplete. Um, So we just think of these couple of actions that are are your struggles. Um, We think of it as this kind of prohibition from fun things, right? Uh, God's law is this prohibition from fun things. Sin are the fun things that we wish we could do, but we probably shouldn't do. Um, And what's interesting is actually the Bible says the opposite. It is actually sin that enslaves us. It's actually sin that takes away freedom. In uh, Genesis 4, God warns Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to dominate you. It's actually sin that robs freedom. It's not law that robs freedom. And in some ways, one of sin's kind of greatest victories, one of Satan's greatest victories, is to convince kind of our cultural consciousness that, like, God's law takes away fun and takes away freedom. And the reason we actually know, implicitly know, that that's a lie is because there's no human society that has ever been built on that lie. Every human society, every human family, every human nation state, whatever it is, is all, has always, for all of human history, there's never not been this, uh, this truth, has recognized that actually in order to make a good, fruitful, and free society, you have to have law. That's been true of all of human history, but all of a sudden when we come to the kingdom of God, we think the opposite. No, 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 the law of God actually inhibits what is good and fruitful and free. In some ways, that's kind of sin's greatest victory, that we've chosen to buy that lie, which we actually don't apply to any other place in our world. Sin, in fact, limits freedom. We need to recover definition for it. Um, 
we need to recover a definition for it because Christianity means nothing without an understanding of sin. Uh, sin is un, it's an unpopular term in some spheres. It's negative. It sounds accusatory. It's unpleasant. You know, you can't make your group big and you can't have fun skits if you talk about sin all the time. Um, you know, and so we're prone to set it aside. And let's not talk about it. Let's talk about the positive things. There's certainly positive things in Scripture. But let's set aside those negative ones and those accusatory ones and those ones that make us feel guilty. And let's talk about community. Let's talk about social justice and family. Let's talk about encouraging each other to be good people. If that's all we ever talk about, then that's just sentimental, empty religion that gives us no capacity for really dealing with the evil in our lives and the psychological, spiritual nightmares that a lot of us live in a lot of the time. If we don't have a robust understanding of sin, Christianity is essentially emptied of its power. It's just sentimentality. And what happens if you... There are a lot of studies going on right now as, as to why a lot of churches are dying in the United States. And this is actually, they're coming to a consensus, is that as churches cease to talk about sin because it's unpopular, their pew's empty. Because if you don't talk about sin, you don't need a Savior. There's no compelling reason to continue to go to church. So our Christianity is empty without understanding sin. But also, you have to know what sin is in order to know the cure. The, the cure for what's wrong in our culture today, in some ways, is like education, right? Every, you know, our, our favorite politician at any given moment, both Republican and Democrat, thinks that the way things get fixed is if we have no children left behind, right? Or if we fix the bad no, left ch- uh, no children left behind policy of the former president, right? What needs to happen is people need to get educated, and that'll fix it. If you think education fixes it, you don't understand it. Or we think, you know, in order to fix it, what we need is a management program. We need, uh, we need a five-step program that we can enact by the sheer force of our will. And if we do that, then we'll stop doing the things and we'll break the habits that we don't need. If you think that's how you battle sin, you don't understand sin. We're not going to understand the cure, actually, until we understand the disease first. We need to understand sin because we Hey, we don't know what it means. Christianity means nothing without it. We can't know what the cure is. But also, if you're like me, you struggle with how much you don't love Jesus. Um, you struggle with how empty your worship often feels. Um, and we think the solution is, All right, I just gotta, I gotta try harder to love Jesus. I'm just gonna will myself to love Jesus harder. You know, I'm gonna work harder at it. And how empty would a marriage be? you looked at your wife and had no delight in her and just thought the solution was, I don't really delight in her, but I'm just going to will myself to delight in her. It's horrible. I hope none of you have marriages like that. But oftentimes that was what we think, like, ah, I don't love Jesus at all. So I'm just going to make myself love Jesus more. And so I suggest that the reason we don't love Jesus, Jesus actually explicitly deals with in the Gospels. He's, he says, you know why people love little? Because they believe they've been forgiven little. And the reason people love me much it's because they believe they've been forgiven much. Understanding of sin is directly tied to how much or how little we love Jesus. And lastly, the reason that we uh, need to address the issue of sin is because it allows us to ask the question, what is wrong with me, and struggle with it. It allows us to all grapple with in a hopefully fruitful way, what is wrong with me? Why do I have to go to bed tonight knowing that I didn't change today 
and that I was still disappointed in who I was today, that today I was a bad husband, today I was a bad pastor, and today I was a bad father. What is wrong with me? I'm 31 years old. I've been to seminary. Y'all think I'm perfect. I have some of y'all tricked. The people who know me well, (laughs) what is wrong with me? It's okay to ask that question. That's what we're asking tonight. And I want to struggle together with the harsh realities of the answer. And so the first thing we're going to do is define what sin is. In your outline, what is sin? And this is a definition. I'm going to tell you the definition, then we're going to go to the text. Sin is essentially, it's the belief that God is neither trustworthy nor good. Sin is the belief that God is neither trustworthy nor good. Look about how the story begins. The serpent, who's Satan's mouthpiece in this passage, he's using the serpent, uh, was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And what he's doing here is he's doing something very subtle because, in fact, that's not what God said. It's actually the very opposite in many ways of what God said earlier in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for in the day you eat you shall die. And so what the serpent has done is he's taken God's truth and just tweaked it a little bit, made it a little bit less trustworthy, and just kind of applied some kind of, just a little bit of wordplay that makes it begin to sound ridiculous, to make God's word begin to sound just a little bit foolish, maybe something worthy of questioning. And Eve responds, and she responds actually well at first. She catches Satan. She says, uh, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the, uh, of the trees of the garden. She corrects him. But God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And now look what she does. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And see, she's on a subtle course, in a slow course, where she tweaked again what God said. She took his commands, and she changed it into something that sounds a little bit more reasonable to question. Because, in fact, that's not what God said. God didn't say, neither shall you touch it. But she's beginning to add to the commands of God. And you see, the nature of most sin is actually this, is that it's subtle. The most heinous aspect of a sin is its subtlety, is that it creeps in just slightly twisting the truth and just slightly tweaking who God is and what he says in order to make questioning him a reasonable act. And then the serpent responds, and what he's doing is he's beginning to cast suspicion on God. Serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying, you know why? You know why God doesn't want you to eat of that tree? Because he's withholding. You know that time when someone wasn't as talented to you and you kind of liked that and then they started improving and you were happy for them and then they surpassed you and you hated them for it? That's what the serpent's accusing God of right here. God's withholding. He doesn't want you to be like him. And notice what the serpent did, did, actually didn't do. He never actually suggested anything for Eve to do. He never said you should try it. He merely cast suspicion on God's character. He just put God in a light to question whether or not he's trustworthy or good. Do you really think... You can trust God. Do you really think God has your best interest at heart? That's all the serpent's asking. And the woman then entertains three thoughts. And these three thoughts are scary. 
When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She looked at it and saw it was good for food. It was reasonable. She looked at it and saw, you know what? It makes sense to do this. It's good for food. She looked at it and it was a delight to her eyes. It was attracted to her senses. She looked at it and thought, this feels right. She looked at it and saw it was practical. You know, this will actually make me wise. It's very reasonable. What sin is, is, is not, it is overt rebellion against God, but it's overt rebellion against God cloaked in being reasonable. And that's the great danger of sin again. It's, it's, it, it's insidious. It has the ability to lull our conscience and our minds and our hearts to sleep, the ability to quiet the alarms of its own presence. And that's what happens to Eve. Sin, which is the distrusting of God's goodness and His, trustful, his truthfulness, it just seem, it slowly seems kind of less atrocious until ultimately it kind of made sense. And we oftentimes... We take the law of God and we kind of mute it and we edit it and we look at our lives and see that our lives are kind of inconsistent with his good design for life and humanity that were intended for us to follow so that humanity may flourish. And we see that our life's inconsistent with it and we, so we begin to articulate our well, you know. Well, he, he, he can't really mean this, right? He can't really, I mean, I have this, but well... Look at, look at them. I'm not them, you know? And there's also the, you know, there's no victim to what I'm doing. And we begin to see that what we want, it's reasonable, it's fun, and it's practical. And that's exactly where Eve was. And this is what happened in a kind of horrible, twisted irony. What the sermon promised, or what the serpent promised, is kind of actually what happens. Eve didn't become like God, but she began to presume to be like God. She did not become like God, but she presumed to be like God. And what I mean like that is she chose to sit in judgment over God instead of sit in judgment under God. We presume to have the, to have the right to evaluate God and his design for this world. We've placed ourselves in the judgment seat, and God is now in the witness stand, and he stands trial under us. Romans 1, 21 through 22 explains people who are caught in sin, and he says, although they knew God, notice what he's saying, he's not talking about atheists or agnostics, he's talking about religious people. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. Thinking they were wise, they became fools. All our moral choices, because certainly our actions are part of our sin, all our moral choices in which we flaunt the law of God, the heart behind those things is the heart that says, God, you're guilty of lying to me. And God, you are guilty of not wanting the best for me. And you see, the issue is actually not just our choices. They're merely the fruit of the heart within us that says, God, you are guilty. We have put ourselves in the judgment seat and put God on the witness stand. And that's what sin really is. When we begin to doubt his trustworthiness and to begin to doubt his goodness. You can look at anything in your life. 
have to be beautiful by the world's standards in order to be happy. God, when you tell me that beauty is character, you're lying. You're just lying. I have to have this in order to be happy. Because God, when you said you're sufficient, you're lying. And you don't have my best interest at heart. You can go through anything. And at the, the, the heart that leads us into interacting with and flirting with sin and then full-fledged flaunting God's law and opposing it is this. This is the belief that God is a liar and not good. And the gospel will mean little to nothing to us until we grapple with it, that dire reality, that that, in fact, is what is in our hearts. Jesus will not be sweet to us until we realize how atrocious and horrendous our situation is before the law of God to presume upon God in that manner. That we stand in judgment over him and declare him guilty. As long as we think Christianity is a morality management program and as long as we take sin lightly, we're going to take Jesus lightly. And so I implore you to see that in every manner that we choose to ignore or reject the law of God, um, it's a manifestation of our hearts saying, God, I cannot trust you and you're not good. Because there's only two options about how to go about in this life. There's not three, there's only two. Either there is no God, which means there's no necessary order to creation, which means that there's no such thing as sin, that injustice has no meaning, that pain's not real, and grieving for death is foolish. Or there's a second option. There's a God. This is his created order. He understands it better than we do, and we look to him in order to live well in it. And we live as if there's a third option that doesn't exist, which is there's a God and he made it, but we understand it better than he does. Sin is us not trusting God and really not believing that he's a good God, and that has ripple effects, obviously. So what are the effects of sin? The first thing that happens, they're illustrated in this passage. The eyes of both were opened. Immediately they ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In chapter 2, verse 25, the last thing before this passage, um, God makes the woman for man. He's fired up about it, and, and it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So we're being pointed back to that passage, and what's being revealed is that, in fact, as soon as sin entered in the world, shame entered into the world. In a state of innocence, there's no cause for shame. There's no desire to hide. There's no dread of being known. As soon as sin entered in the world, they were naked, and they were ashamed. And what shame is, shame is the fear of being known, when you are known, you're found to be lacking. It's the fear of being known, and when you are known, you're found to be lacking. It's the fear of being exposed, of being revealed, and dreading what may happen when you're revealed. And you, you, you probably think about times when you're almost caught, right? The times when you were, your shame was almost exposed. And we could talk about shame in socially unacceptable circumstances. We all experience shame in the socially unacceptable sins, but shame really pervades all sins, even the socially acceptable ones, because what none of us want people to know is that the same heart that drives us to those bad things we're ashamed of is the same heart that drives us to our good things. And that even in our best things, mostly what we're doing in our relationships is using people so that we can feel secure and happy. 
And in fact, we actually essentially are abusing each other in all of our relationships. We're never ending in relationships hoping to serve people and to draw them towards the cross. We're ending in relationships saying, please make me happy today. This is about me. And you see, we don't want anybody to know that either. We don't want anybody to know how bad we really are, even in our best friendships. Shame is all over the place in all of us. And what shame is, is a failure to trust. It's a failure to trust that if you are known, you can still be loved and valued. They're ashamed, and then the next thing they do is they begin to hide. They sewed fig leaves to cover over their shame. If you're thinking fig leaves, that sounds ridiculous. That doesn't sound like it would cover shame. You're probably picking up on what they covered here, I'm sure. Um, if you think that sounds ridiculous, because it is. It is insufficient. Fig leaves will wilt. Fig leaves are not big. Fig leaves do not sufficiently cover our shame. They begin to hide. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Uh, And the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of the garden. I was afraid. I was naked. And so I hid myself. We're filled with shame and then we become hiders. Upon being shamed, we create a facade uh, to cover our shame, whether it's, it could be a thousand different things. It can be physical appearance, right? It's not a girl issue. This is a guy and girl issue. Um, in fashion, the approach to food and fitness, we're crafting fig leaves to distract people from our shame. To avoid being known, it's not merely appearance, it's also personality. We use our personality to distract people from who we are. If we can keep people entertained, right? Our personalities are can be carefully crafted mechanisms for getting people to like us, to approve of us, and never really know us. It can be your work. If you're successful enough, nobody's going to see who you really are. Nobody's going to question you. Sin and shame make us people who hide. How do you hide? What's your smoke and mirrors? Makes us fearful and insecure. Look at what happens next day. God comes in the garden, and he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. They hide, and they hide because they're fearful. And one of the things we're all trying to convince each other in this room is that we're not fearful and that we're not insecure. And a lot of our hiding is actually tied to that in a lot of ways. And we do it in a lot of different ways. Sometimes we try to hide by establishing this facade of dominance, right? We want to convince everybody that we're not insecure. Or sometimes we hide, sometimes we deal with our fearful insecurity by establishing this kind of facade of cool detachment. They're the people who are, I need you to see me as dominant. I need you to see me as funny. I need you to see my personality this certain way so that I can feel valued because I'm so deeply insecure. But there's the other end of the spectrum of, I need you to see that I don't need you. And that's insecurity as well. That kind of cool detachment. And this is what actually marks true security. A man who is secure is not a dude that buys into idiot, culturally informed versions of masculinity. It has nothing to do with Fight Club. It has nothing to do with that idiot vigilante justice movie. What's it called? Boondock Saints. I think those are entertaining movies and good. I watch them. If you think that's what masculinity is, it's foolishness. Anybody who buys into that masculinity is just exposing their insecurity. Masculinity is confession of sin. Masculinity is saying, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Insecurity drives us to put up this facade of sufficiency. 
the security of the cross allows us to let our insufficiency be exposed. Secure women are marked by the confession of sin. By saying, I am deeply insecure, all I have is Jesus. The other thing we do with insecurity is we latch on to false hopes, dreams, relationships, whatever it is, and ask for those things to give us life. If we can just have those things, we'll have life. And here's the problem with those things. Among other things, suffering is imminent. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, everybody agrees, suffering is imminent. Jesus promises suffering in your life. Pain is coming. If it hasn't come already, it probably has for most of us. If in our insecurity we parasitically attach ourselves to these hopes, these dreams, these relationships, these uh, ideas of what we're supposed to be or what we can have, then when suffering comes, we'll be destroyed. When those things are taken away, we'll be destroyed. Maybe some of the things that all of us need to do is we need to hang out with some beautiful 75-year-olds. There are some beautiful 75-year-olds. And you know what? Their bodies look like crap. And they are beautiful. In Christ, instead of being destroyed by suffering, when we latch onto those things in insecurity, suffering takes them away, and all of a sudden our life source is gone and we're destroyed. The exact opposite happens in Christ. Suffering galvanizes you. Suffering refines God's people. It allows us to cast off all the things that we finally see as empty and trust and take hold even more tightly of who Jesus is that he's the only thing that cannot fail, that he is the life giver. And actually in the midst of suffering, Christians begin to flourish in life instead of begin to lose life. And suffering, without Jesus and insecurity, our suffering will destroy us. With Jesus and secure in him, suffering will galvanize you. We're insecure, we're blame shifters. It's the next thing that happens. I heard... uh, who told you that you were naked, God says. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man says, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. They're saying, Yeah, but no, it's actually them. It's their fault. We all know that there's something wrong with the world. Everybody agrees on that. But we all think it's someone else's fault. Right? The Republicans hate the Democrats, the Democrats' fault, the Northerners and the Southerners, the religious people and the irreligious people. I have meetings with students all the time. I hope to meet with y'all. I hope this doesn't make you not want to meet with me. Um, and man, coming to college and getting a roommate is hard. Living with somebody new, even if it's your best friend, it's just different to live with somebody. I get that. Roommate's hard. And I, and I know that y'all have struggles. But, but the roommate conversations I have across the board 100% of the time are this. Britton, I need to talk. Okay, let's talk. Britton, here are the nine things my room, uh, here are the nine different ways my roommate's failing me and sinning against me. I've never had somebody say, Britton, I need to talk. I've sinned deeply against my roommate. I've sinned deeply against my parents. We all think our roommate situation, I think my marriage, the problem of marriage is Elizabeth. We all think our roommate situation problem is our roommate. We're blame shifting, like our first parents. And lastly, we become contemptible because that's what goes along with blame shifting. What you see in Adam is you see this her, right? It was her. 
this contempt. And contempt is that growing grumble in your heart that you have towards that person who deserves to be hated, right? And it feels good, and it feeds on anger and accusation. And it's that person that you hate because they're, you know why you hate them. And you feel righteous in doing so. And you have a list of reasons of why you're right to feel so much contempt for them. I saw the movie There Will Be Blood, and um, I don't know if y'all have seen it. It's a great movie. It's a scary movie. It's a great, not a horror movie. No, not that kind of scary. Uh, but it was a scary movie for me because I watched Daniel Day-Lewis, and he has this scene where he sits around the campfire, and he's talking to this guy who's posing as his brother. It's, in fact, not his brother. And um, he's trying to gauge whether or not he's his brother, and he says, if you're my brother, you're like me. And this is how he explains himself. He goes, this is what it means to be like me. I see people around me, and I see nothing worth liking. And watching that scene scared me to death because I identified with him. Because we despise people who are different from us. Whatever that group of people is, whoever that individual is, that you see and you see nothing worth liking. And that's our sin in our heart. This is a two-part sermon. You have to come back next week. You're required to come back next week now. Um, but this is the application tonight. Take your sin seriously. I implore you to take your sin seriously. Consider for what it is. Our sin is our attempt to put God on the witness stand and us sit on the judge's seat and determine whether or not God is good or trustworthy. And we have to take that sin and that aspect of our heart seriously because God does take it seriously. Because he's holy and he permits no unrighteousness into his presence. He is pure. He is without blemish. He is righteous, he is perfect, and he's not to be trifled with. He destroys what is evil and he exalts what is good. He's not safe and he's not your buddy and he's not uh, a lucky charm that you invoke when you want to make a good grade or stop a bad habit. God is God and he is judge and he is resolutely committed to restoring his creation by eradicating the evil within it. And that is weighty and fearful news for us. In fact, if that was where the story ended, we would have every incentive to live in shame, to hide that shame, to feel deeply insecure, to cling to something to give us some kind of hope, and to point the finger at others and say it's their fault, if that was all that there was to the story. But the story doesn't stop. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to look about how in Genesis 3, we begin to get glimmers of the fact that our, this God who is perfect and who is good and who is trustworthy and who destroys all evil, who hates evil and exalts what is right, who is just, he's also merciful. And he's gracious and he is patient. And he's a kind God. He is long-suffering. And he's forgiving. And all of us need to be forgiven much. And he offers the grace of forgiveness, but the offer is very free and very costly because the sin and the evil in our hearts has to be dealt with it has to be judged it has to be eradicated and the arrogant posture we've taken over him as his judge is evil and we're ripe for punishment because of it and the question arises then how can God both be just and be merciful and the answer is that he is willing to provide a substitute on our behalf and at the cross we see his justice and his sense of holiness and we see his grace 
come together. And he pours out his wrath on that substitute on our behalf, and that substitute is his son. And he's willing to bear our shame. And that's what we're going to look at next week. Let's pray.